You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, if you were here last Sunday, and I know seven or eight of you were, I mentioned uh, that we had encountered a phrase a couple of times that we were going to take on uh, this morning regarding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, this is a real issue for some people. Our, um, you know, when kids are little, they pick up phrases, they pick up words um, from outside your home, and, and you'll notice they're, they're on that kick for a little while, right? Our, our five-year-old twins have recently picked up How Dare You um, from school, probably from a deacon's child, and so... <laughs> They, uh, so they'll, they'll get completely upset at home. Maybe we made the wrong, put the wrong jelly on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or we turned off the TV so that we could do something else, and they'll burst out in tears and say, how dare you? Um, it's really cute. Um, but there is, a, there is a cry in a lot of people's hearts, in a lot of our hearts who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ when we run across passages like this that says something almost like that to God. How dare you? How dare you step over human freedom? How dare you seem to work in in any way that might suggest that, that your autonomy and sovereignty is greater than we are? That's in a lot of us. It's in a lot of us in this room this morning, and it is uh, a base idolatry rooted in our idea of individualism, of human self-exaltation and worship, that when it comes right down to it, we struggle to accept that anyone is truly greater than us. And there's no doubt God has given human beings a, a great measure of freedom. That's part of what it means to be made in his image, to have full human agency, to think and to feel and to function and to act and to will on our behalf and on behalf of others freely and fully. And yet God is sovereign over the workings of the human heart, of his world, of history, and of redemption. Scripture says it again and again and again and again and again. So I want to start out gentle this morning. And we're not going to resolve all the mystery here. If we've resolved the mystery, I submit to you that we have fallen off the center of the biblical fence on one side or the other. Because God, nor the biblical writers moved by the Spirit of God, resolves most areas of mystery that we run onto in Scripture. They're just there. This statement is true, and this statement is true. This characteristic of God is true, and this characteristic of God is true. That's exceptionally difficult for Western minds. Some of you who've lived in other places, some of you who've lived in the ancient Near East or the Middle East or maybe the Far East, Asia, you've lived in cultures where that is not difficult, where it's culturally normed to set two seemingly opposing truths side by side and simply accept them both as true and move on from there. Let's start out and let's uh, look at Exodus uh, chapter 4 and chapter 7. Now, what we've been doing and what we will, will do after this in Exodus is largely take blocks of Exodus and work through them. 
This morning is different because we're dealing with the issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, particularly as it relates to the, God, to the goodness of God. And I submit to you that it absolutely does relate to the goodness of God. So it will be um, more topical or more thematic, I uh, think more systematic theology um, than a typical message will be here on Sunday morning. Let's look again at Exodus 4, 21. Exodus 4, 21. The first time we see one of three Hebrew phrases uh, that is translated hardening or to harden or harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 21 of chapter 4, God is speaking to Moses and says, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Now, if you look at the grammar there carefully, Moses is performing the wonders, is he not? Who is the power behind the wonders that Moses is performing? It's God. It's God. God at work in human beings. And I just want to point out to you that most of the time, God answers our prayers through the agency and avenue of people in our lives. And quite often for the believers, it is brothers and sisters in Christ in your local fellowship through whom God has ordained to answer many of the prayers in your life. It's God at work, God at work through Moses. But I will harden his heart, that is Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. We talked when we first read this about the fact that there's just, there's sovereign mystery in here that we can't fully unpack. We can't fully dismiss or release the mystery here. Turn over, if you will, to Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Now, you notice that the phrase we just read, the statement we just read in 421, was predictive. It was prophetic. I will, at a point in the future, following some of your words and actions to Pharaoh, I will harden his heart. Here we have another predictive, prophetic word from God. Exodus 7, 3 and 4. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Again, the Lord is talking to Moses. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with many mighty acts of judgment, and I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. So we have these two predictive words from God, that God's sending a Savior in Moses back into the land of slavery, back into the, the land of imprisonment where his people are to bring them out, to redeem them, to deliver them. And God's going to be the one at work, the one bringing the power. And I wonder how often you and I forget that in our own lives. We forget that when we're approaching something, when we're dealing with something in our lives, and certainly we're approaching something as it relates to the, the community of faith, to the purposes of God, to going or not going in God's name, 
that we dare not approach that without a humility that acknowledges it has to be God's power at work in us. God's power at work through us. That's how God advances his kingdom. And yet he says twice, I'm going to, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And it's kind of bizarre. You'd think he'd soften it, right? I mean, when you're going to deliver a tough message to somebody, would you prefer God harden the heart of the one that's supposed to receive it or soften it? Soften it. Imagine you were married. And imagine you'd been a horse's rear and your spouse knew it. You'd shown some snout. You'd been short. Possibly condescending. And you were irritated with them and they were irritated with you. I know none of you have been there, but there's that potential in marriage to get in that place. Right? And let's say you're at the point in marriage where you've been married long enough that the way you resolve that stuff is just to acknowledge something random around the house and then move on like it never happened. Like, man, whew, we've got to replace the seal underneath the front door. Yeah, we really need to do that. And then you, jump, you both, that's your way of saying, we're done now. Fight's over, let's go on. Right? And the fridge is not freezing like it. You know, I've noticed that too. And then the fight's over. But let's say you decide, I'm going to go speak to my wife. And I'm going to apologize for showing snout. For being a condescending jerk. You can do it after church, AJ. You don't have to do it right now. Um, I saw him getting started down there now. And I was wanting him to know it, it can wait till after church, brother. But um, your prayer would not be, Lord, may you harden the heart of my wife as I go to apologize to her. It's would you soften their heart? Would you make her receptive? We don't think this way. It's bizarre when it starts out. But I want us to do this to ground everything that's going to come in the next few minutes. I want us to remember what we know about God and his character from the Bible. Because the lens through which you understand someone's actions, the lens through which you filter them, is the lens of what you know about that person. Of what you know about that person. If David McGinnis comes up here in the middle of the week and he's wearing swim trunks and a tank top and flip-flops, I know that something is wrong in David's life. Because I know David McGinnis. I know the man. I know his character. Something's gone terribly wrong. Or he's just had a series of surgeries. And that's the best he could do. I have no doubt, David, you would press those shorts. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Be proud of that. Own that. For us to understand what's going on here, we've got to root ourselves again in what we know about God and his character from the Bible. Three things. You've heard this before, but we've got to look at it again. The first is simply this, that God is good. God is good. In fact, Jesus went so far as to say, No one is good but God alone. He said, actually, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And he wasn't saying, I'm not good. He's saying, do you understand what you're saying when you call me good? 
There's no one good but God. It doesn't mean that in common grace, you and I don't do good things. It doesn't mean that by virtue of God's common grace given to people in this world, we don't see human beings acting in goodness and, and doing good works at times. But it means that the root of what it means to be a human being fallen and sinful and rebellious toward God is that we are indeed not good. But the witness of Scripture is that he is good. Psalm 105, there's so many places, so many places to go to in Scripture with this. I want to read just a couple for you. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His love endures forever. Some of you have loved someone and found out at some point that their love for you did not endure forever. And it's painful. It's painful. The writer of this psalm wants us to know that is not like our God's love. His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all. To who? To all. To all. To everybody. To the most wretched human being alive. God is good. God shows goodness and common grace. Remember Jesus saying God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain to come. The righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. See, you and I don't understand how God could operate like we see him operating in Judges where he instructs his people, commands them that when you go into this region already occupied and settled by people, you are to make war on them and you are to destroy them. Every man woman, child, and what? Animal. For some of you, that's even worse. Not the puppies. Look, they ate the puppies then, so they were already gone. Everything. It's hard for us to understand how God could command that, and then not only that, but bring judgment on his people when they fail to do that. And how this could be true, that he has compassion on all he has made. But church, this is the truth. God has compassion on all he has made. And yet, he is at work redemptively, saving from every tribe and tongue a people to be his people, to be his nation, to dwell with him in glory throughout eternity in a renewed earth and heaven. And that constitutes and requires remarkable unusual movements on God's part at times in redemptive history. God is good. John tells us also that God is light. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us in a, in a, uh, a culture where light comes so easily to us, right? You just flip it up and it comes on. Uh, we're going to institute a class at our house for our teenagers demonstrating how you flip it down and the light goes off. Some of you want that. We'll post it. You can use that in your house as well. 
Light is very available to us. If our lights go off, we've got multiple flashlights around the house, good ones, you know, about the size of a toothpick that can blind invaders. It's kind of, if tactical doesn't follow the description of your flashlight, you need to upgrade it. We've got candles. We've got all kinds of things to produce light. But you know what? Among many of us, there's still a fear of the darkness. Many, many of us simply do not like the darkness. We don't like night. I've got a little brother who is 17 months younger than me. And I, I am telling you, he would, he would fight a bear simply at the dare. But he hates the darkness. So we had a lot of fun with that growing up. Because we were ranch kids and we just had to be out at night a lot. God is light. 1 John 1, 5 bears witness. This is the message we have heard from him. John is saying, this is what we heard from Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, who we all know to have been crucified. As so many tens of thousands of others have as a Roman criminal. And yet he rose and ascended. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. No darkness. Every time you begin to doubt the character of God, every time you begin to doubt the purposes of God, every minute you spend doubting the motives of God is the whisper of Satan in your ear. Because the testimony of Scripture is that he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And in John's day, it is a way of saying, in him is everything that is good and right and just and pure and beautiful. And in him there is nothing that is evil and contrary and sinful and demeaning and demented. He is light. He is purity. He is goodness. He is just. He is beautiful. God is good. God is light. And I'll give you one more. God is love. God is love. This is why we have to be careful in our love happy day about making great statements about what love is and what love isn't, uh, talking about it in this abstract way when basically we mean sexual affection toward another. Because the Bible tells us that God himself is love. So any definition of love, any understanding of love is going to have to start with God, with the person and work and instruction of God to actually be love. John tells the believers to whom he writes in 1 John 4, 8, and all these verses, you can try to keep up this morning, and in a minute you'll just give up, but they're all in the app, the notes section uh, for this message in the app. 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Startling statement if you've ever met a professing Christian in church who seemed to be unable to love. They could quote scripture. They could teach a Sunday school class. They could argue at a business meeting. They could correct your theology. What they couldn't seem to do 
was love. What they couldn't seem to do was ever find words that were healing to people. They could never seem to do was speak life into a tense situation. Speak peace into a room where there was trouble and there was tension. God is love. God is good. God is light. And God is love. In him there is no darkness at all. This is the God we know. This is the God who saved us. This is the God who offers salvation to all who will repent. And yet we run on to this phrase, I will harden his heart. And in our deepest places, many of us go, how dare he? How dare he just pick someone and decide he's going to harden his heart? Psalm 105, 24 and 25 reflect back on this act of God. Psalm 105, verses 24 and 25, as the psalmist is reflecting on the Exodus, this great redemptive act of God among his people in history. It says, The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. It's a strange thing. God is behind the fruitfulness and the multiplication of his people in the land of slavery, and he is also behind the hatred in the hearts of the Egyptians toward his people, toward his people. What's interesting you see here, and you see as you look uh, at Exodus 4 through 14, that it's not just Pharaoh or maybe, um, maybe slave drivers that were guilty. It's the Egyptian people in general who had come to see the Israelites as less than. The Egyptian people disliked them. They were their nation's slaves. The Egyptian people were as complicit in what was going on as the Egyptian leaders and rulers. Now, this theme of hardening in Exodus, where we go back to now, occurs 20 times. It occurs 20 times between chapter 4 and chapter 14 of Exodus. Three different Hebrew phrases used, as I said, uh, can, can be construed or, or, um, or translated as stiffening, hardening, a number of ways. Let's go through these fairly quickly. We're just going to read these off. We've already read 4.1, the predictive statement. We've already read 7.3. Now let's go 7.13 and 14. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. It's another Hebrew phrase there. It could also be translated hard. He refuses to let the people go. Now go down to verse 22 of chapter 7. But the Egyptian magic magicians did the same things by their secret arts. I can't wait to cover that next week. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. 
He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. So, so already early on, some commentators will kind of want to set this aside and say, well, God doesn't actually, if you look at it carefully, harden Pharaoh's heart until, until Pharaoh's hardened his heart a bunch. And it seemed to have, have gone past that point of no return like we see in Romans 1 where God will give a people over to their sin. Um, I can understand that except that the writer of Exodus sees to see, seems to see here in the very beginning the hand of God, the progression of God, even when it just states that Pharaoh's heart became hard. All right, 8.15, chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Verse 19. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Verse 32. But this time Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Pretty straightforward there, isn't it? Nine, chapter 9, verse 7. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Verses 34 and 35. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go just as the Lord had said through Moses. Here you see this, this dual mysterious mixture. The text is very clear grammatically that it was Pharaoh and his officials who were hardening their own hearts, and yet this was happening just as the Lord had said through Moses. And it is not simply that God knew this would happen. The, the phrase foreknew in Scripture is rarely used in that sense. There's a mystery here. Uh, 10.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, and I have hardened, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Uh, 10.20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Chapter 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Chapter 14. Verses 4 and 5. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. Verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt 
so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Twenty times between Exodus 4 and Exodus 14, we come up with this issue of hardening. This is a significant theme in the book of Exodus. It's a significant part of God redeeming his people out of Egypt. It was a significant, a significant uh, milestone, an important part of Paul trying to understand as Gentiles were being grafted into the people of God. And yet so many of his faithful, ethnic, even Yahweh-worshiping Jews were rejecting Jesus. And Paul was wrestling with this in Romans 9, 10 and 11. And I, I, and I just, I want to encourage you, those of you who are more inclined to be Bible students, that Romans 9, 10, and 11 aren't standalones, right? Paul wrote an entire letter with an entire argument moving through the letter. And following this great Everest of redemptive truth in Romans 8, Paul goes, but man, in Romans 9, what about, what about my brothers and sisters who I've grown up in the faith with? And under the power of the Spirit, Paul, knowing his scriptures, he, he reaches back to the Exodus story. Romans 9, 16 through 18, Paul says, It does not, therefore, it being salvation, who's in, who's out, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, we, every one of us that talks about salvation by grace believes this. Do we not? That it's not my desire to be saved, to be in a right relationship with God. It's not my effort that makes it possible. It is God's sheer, magnificent, free grace given to me through faith in Jesus Christ. That I can't stir up in myself because I'm dead in my sin apart from the intervening work of God. Not just dead, my heart is hostile toward God himself and my mind is darkened, the scripture says, to the things of God. It's not that I do not understand them, it's that I cannot understand them. God has to come. If you're in here this morning and the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you've got peace for today, hope for tomorrow, and security for eternity, you ought to fall on your knees that God came for you. That God came for you, that He didn't leave you in your sin. Paul simply acknowledges it doesn't, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. Because Paul has just gotten through saying, Man, I, I would give up my own salvation if those of my people could be brought in. This is a very personal wrestling that Paul's going through. He said, But that's not it. It doesn't depend on me. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do, do you hear the missional heart of God? I told you last week that Exodus is a missional book. I raised you up for this very purpose, Pharaoh, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
that God is not a narcissist. He's the only one who could say something like this, and it'd be absolutely true. But for his name to be proclaimed in all the earth, as Paul is talking about and quoting here, it means on the tongues of people from every nation, tribe, and group. What Paul is saying here is that God had a redemptive purpose in raising up Pharaoh and relating to Pharaoh as he did. And by the way, Pharaoh was not a grand guy, right? Study Pharaoh's son. Study what he'd done before God ever moved on it. I mean, honestly, we're so... We're so weird about this. It's like God saying, yeah, I, I hardened Charlie Manson's heart. Why? Why didn't you give him the Romans road? He raised him up in line with his eternal redemptive plan. Verse 18. And this is the one that just shakes most people and we say, how dare he? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. There, there can be no other way, church, because we can't earn any of this. Because we all deserve nothing but hardening. In fact, that's the drift of our life without God. But thankfully, God has mercy on who he has mercy. God has to come and intervene. It's God's work. Ron Youngblood uh, said, prolific Old Testament scholar, and I was, I was really blessed to have him uh, when I was at Bethel Seminary in San Diego for the last class he taught after, I think, 53 years of full-time seminary teaching. It's a class on the Pentateuch, so we went through the first five books of the Bible. I think he was 80, maybe 82. Such a gentle soul, but looking back at some of his work on this, he commented here, and I think it's really poignant. Paul reasoned that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in a free and sovereign manner, but not in a capricious or arbitrary manner. I mean, can, can, you, can you trust that that can be true? God absolutely has the freedom and the sovereignty to do as he pleases. But he does nothing capriciously or arbitrarily. Romans 9, 14 through 18. He always acts justly, 9, 14, and in sovereign freedom, 9, 18. He displays great patience for the objects of his wrath, 9, 22. We're all objects of God's wrath. That's why the New Testament says God's not slow as some might count slowness, but he's patient, wishing that none would perish, but all would come to saving knowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you two takeaways from this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. One is simply this, that God, God is free to act however he wants in keeping with his own character and redemptive purpose. I'll say that again and then explain just a little bit about it. God is free to act however he wants 
Now, we could just stop right there. But when we stop right there, I think we do an injustice to who God is. All that says uh, is a statement about his power, but not his character. God is free to act any way he wants in keeping with his character. Remember, he doesn't change like the shifting sands. Book of James tells us. And his redemptive purposes. God is always at work in his redemptive purposes, which means he's always working for you. Do you not not understand that? God was hardening Pharaoh's heart for you. God was at work in Pharaoh the way that he was for your spiritual ancestors so that they might be set free, brought into the land, brought through a season of judges and prophets and kings until ultimately one would come that would bless the entire world. And if you notice, some of you probably did, some of you may not have, but in Exodus 7, I'll read again verse 3, but I'll go all the way through 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. God wants even the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. That all of these, uh, these hundreds of other gods, pseudo-gods they've been worshiping and giving themselves to that we're going to run into next week, they, they're false gods. They're nothing. They're nothing. Even in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was God's missional heart for Pharaoh's people themselves. You see it again in Exodus 14. For I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. We're going to talk next week about God's heart for his own people when he's doing this as well. And what's amazing, if you go back just a little bit to verse 12, this has happened because verse 12, or chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 37 and 38 says the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Now look at verse 38. Many other people went up with them. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Most of these many other people going up with them were Egyptians. They were Egyptian men and women who'd watched the God of the Israelites do what he had done and in some way left only to the providential mystery and goodness of God come to believe in their God and want to go with them as they follow him. In a sense, it was their exodus too. Second takeaway, this is 
This is good news for believers and should lead to the praise of his glorious name. That every time we see this, and you see it a few more, you see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in 1 Samuel. Whenever God's hardening someone or turning someone, he's always doing it at a historical time for the goodness of his people, for the goodness of you. So who are we to step up on our tiny little high horse and question God? How dare you? How dare you act in a way I don't understand? How dare you act in a way that seems to violate human freedom? We are the ones that are superior. We are the ones that matter most. I can tell you to the degree that screams in your soul, you really need to deal with your own redemption. Because Jesus made very clear that to come after him is to die to ourselves. To take up our cross and follow him. Paul said, it's not I who live anymore, but Christ who lives in me. So that when it's Christ living in me, the greatest desire of my heart is that the glory of God would be known. Is that his name would be known. That people would come to see And when we understand that he acts in keeping with his character and his purposes, it is good news for us because we are swept up in those purposes. Even so was Jesus himself. Acts 2 is Peter's beginning to answer what's happening at Pentecost. He says, fellow Israelites, in 22, this won't be up on the screen. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs. You see, a, uh, uh, you see a parallel with Moses? Jesus accredited to the people there by God through signs, wonders, and miracles, which God did among you through him. So you yourselves know this man, now listen to this. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, are those who put Christ to death, who flogged him and beat him and spit on him, and forced a crown of thorns into his skull as blood ran down his head, his face, and his neck, those who laughed and mocked him as he hung on the cross, that eternally historic, fateful Friday afternoon, are they any less guilty? Are they not guilty? They're absolutely guilty for what they did. And also, they did what they did by the deliberate plan of God. God not violating their free will. God guiding that free will. God allowing their free will to be part of his redemptive plan in killing his own son that all of us might have life. (laughs) Who who are we really to to question God, friends? I don't mean to ask him questions. You know the difference. I'm a pastor. After 20 years, I well know the difference when someone has a question for me and when someone is questioning me. When behind the questions are accusations and insinuations. Versus a simple desire to know more, to understand more deeply. But God can handle both. He's not afraid of you. 
He's not afraid of me. He's not even afraid of your kids. Remember a, a few minutes ago, we read Psalm 105, 24, and 25. Let me remind you of that. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. As the band makes their way back out on stage and prepares to lead us in a time of response, reflection, I want I want to call your attention to the way that Psalm 105 opens and closes, how it begins and ends. We find that harsh truth sandwiched in the middle, that God calls the fruitness of his people, but he also calls the hardening of the hearts that led to the hatred of his people. Can I tell you, as a Christian, nobody can hate you for being one of God's people, but that that hatred passes through the hands of the God who holds you. You and I have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear in the rising and falling of nations, the coming and going of people groups. Our fear level there is going to be directly proportionate to how impassioned we are for God's glory and not our own. This is how Psalm 105 begins. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. That's how 105 opens. Let me tell you how it closes. After acknowledging that the Lord had hardened the hearts of the Egyptians and caused hatred toward his own people. 105, 43 through 45 ends this way. He brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. He gave them the lands of the nations and they fell heir to what others had toiled for. That they might keep their precepts, his precepts, and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Our job is to praise the Lord, not question the means by which our redemption comes and is applied. We stand as we pray. Father, you are great. You are glorious. God, you certainly do truly move in mysterious ways. But God, you do so for your glory and for our good. You do so for the advancement of your redemptive purposes, calling men, women, and children from every tribe and tongue out of darkness and into light, out of sin into salvation, out of alienation, into relationship, out of shame, into peace and purity. God, we confess to you that you are good. You are light in whom there is no darkness. And God, you are love. 
Give us the faithfulness and the trust to use those truths as cornerstones when we run into difficult passages in Scripture or God difficult seasons in our lives where things are passing into our lives that don't feel good. They don't feel like. They don't feel like they're generated by love. Let us hold on to you and glorify your name. May that be the beat of every one of our hearts this morning. God, as we prepare to receive such a tiny portion of all that you've given us and trusted us with, Lord, both in offering this morning and in terms of commitments on connection cards and prayer requests, Father, I pray that all that's given would be given with a heart fully submitted to you. God, and where that's not the case, some of us this morning, we do need to resubmit ourselves to you. We need to say, God, I feel like I've drifted off, exalting myself, exalting what I felt like were my rights and my freedoms, and I'll lay that down at your feet, good and glorious and beautiful God. I love you, and I long to see your name lifted up. God, to that end, may every connection card that's turned in, every dollar that's given or received this morning or has been given online or by text throughout this week, be used for your glory and your glory alone. Jesus, I pray this in your exalted, beautiful, and faithful name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.